Thank you so much. Good morning. Critical questions. Those are the issues that we're addressing over the course of these summer days. And another of the passages that deals with that whole matter of the critical questions that Jesus posed to both his opponents as well as his followers is found in the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew. I'd love for you to turn there now. And what we're going to be doing is looking very carefully this morning at another of these questions, and we are going to call it the critical question of loyalty, regarding our loyalty to Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. And in this 26th chapter, you and I are going to be introduced to some tremendous tensions that Christ is facing with regard to his supposed followers, And we're going to watch very carefully as to how Jesus Christ responds to those issues. We're going to read from verse 30 down through verse 35. It's a springboard into the entire section. And here Matthew tells us, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So we're going to be talking about loyalty this morning. Our relationship to Christ. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we're coming before you. We come before you as people in desperate need of your grace and your mercy. People created in the image of God, but due to the sinful nature that we've inherited, (coughs) came into this world separated from you. But our Lord and our Savior was loyal to the Father's will to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's our Lord's loyalty to his Father and to his Father's plan and purpose to redeem people that we're able to stand here today and worship you. Now we come into this gathering, Father, and we've got all kinds of needs and challenges and issues that we're facing. Some of them can easily distract us from your word. What we want to do, Father, now is to take this and place it before you and submit it to you and ask for your word to speak powerfully to our hearts. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds and shape these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We pray this again now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Goff has given us tremendous opportunity to be exposed to a wide range of personalities through the years. And if there was one personality in my mind that stands out, it was Lee Trevino. He's in his 70s now, and he has won over six majors, you know, all except the Masters. For some reason, the Masters eluded his grasp. But he has a charisma about him, and he's got a style about him, he's got humor about him, and the crowds love him. And he was quick with his wit. And this particular time where there was a woman who was following him from one hole to the next, and he took a break, and he was heading to a concession stand, and she said, I am your most loyal fan. She had a $5 bill in her hand and asked him to autograph it. And so he just simply wrote down to my most loyal fan, Lee Trevino. And she looked up with these gazed eyes and she said, I'll keep it for the rest of my life. After the tournament was over, Trevino went to get some food from a concession stand, put out a $20 bill, and his autograph five was among the change put in his hand. And that story reminds me of the disciples. And the story reminds me of many who would profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But for some reason, it seems as though when it is no longer convenient to be loyal, well, then we hand in our fives. What I want to do with you this morning is to draw out three significant distinctives of loyalty that are found in these verses that equip us as individuals, that hopefully equip us if we're parents to be able to shape the mindsets and the worldview of our children, our family. Three distinctives of loyalty that I think are significant here to be able to apply to everyday life. The first flows out of verse 30 down through verse 35. We're going to put it like this. Number one, remain loyal to Christ even in the midst of shallow devotion. You and I live among many people in this nation who will profess faith in Christ and claim to be a follower of Christ. But the question is the depth and the degree of that devotion. That is the test of the hour. It's the test for the disciples, too, because they're about to leave that upper room where they have experienced the Seder, the last Passover, simultaneously the first Lord's Supper. And you and I are told in verse 30 that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, what is interesting here about this statement is this. When you and I are told that they sung a hymn, that hymn pertains to the whole idea of Psalm 113 through 118. Because Psalm 113 through 118 was sung prior to and subsequent to the Seder. Psalms 113 and 114 were sung just prior to, to the time in which the bitter herbs and the likes were eaten. And then Psalm 115 through 118 were sung subsequent to. Now here's what's interesting. Right in the midst of the singing, you and I would be introduced to the 13th verse of the 116th Psalm, 
where the verse tells us, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Now, the cup of salvation is going to reappear. Reappear in Gethsemane where Jesus Christ is going to be wrestling with the will matter. And he's going to be talking about the cup. And that cup that he is wrestling with, he would like to be able to avoid. Pass from me, he would say. Nevertheless, not I will, but as you will. They sing the song. They go out and they begin to make their movement towards the Mount of Olives where someday our Lord will return. And then Jesus says this to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. Now, notice the phrasing here. You will all fall away. The word all is emphatic in the original language. And notice it says, you will all fall away because of me. It does not read, you will all fall away from me. In other words, there is something significant about Jesus Christ, who he is, that will cause them to not merely fall from him, but fall because of him. And so definitive are his statements that he's able to also say, this night. You can imagine their version of the Hallel, Psalm 113 through 118, would be, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. But now Jesus has just made this statement in the midst of their singing, and now he groups together their songs with God's scriptures and then says dramatically, for it is written. Notice this. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Taken from the Old Testament in Zechariah 13, verse 7. What stands out to you there? Did you notice that it does not say that the chief priests will strike the shepherd? Or that Herod or Pilate will strike the shepherd, or the Roman soldiers will strike the shepherd. This is God the Father, sovereignly involved with regarding the work of God the Son at the cross. And now you and I are told that in this covenantal relationship of eternity past, where this was worked out, God the Father is saying, I will strike the shepherd, speaking of God the Son, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, because this was not their idea of how Messiah would reign, you see. Now, Peter. Can you identify Peter here? In verse 33, now Peter's going to jump into this and say, Though they all fall away because of you. I can imagine now James and John standing there, and they're now putting their arms up, and they're folding their hands, and they're staring down Peter at this point. 
Because Peter, James, and John together were out on the Mount of Transfiguration, weren't they? It's as if now Peter's singling himself out for loyal devotion. And he's saying, in essence, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Notice his dogmatic absolutism. makes me pause when I look, look at my own claims with regard to the devotion of Jesus Christ. When I consider how powerfully God used Peter. And how Peter so emphatically and yet so impulsively would make this statement. And then Jesus steps into the fray. And he says to Peter, he, he calls him on this. Truly I tell you, this very night, notice how definitive he is, before the rooster crows, that will get Peter's attention. He does not merely say, you will deny me. He says, you will deny me three times. And that is going to have a dramatic impact upon the way in which Peter will be restored to Jesus when Jesus poses, do you love me, Peter, subsequent to this encounter. Now, Peter is still not satisfied with this, and so he responds, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And now the others chime in. All the disciples said the same. But not he's not really arguing for a heroic faith at this point, what he is really doing is that he is positioning himself against the word of God. Because Jesus Christ has said, it is written. I will strike the shepherd, God the Father, pertaining to God the Son, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. We're critically and committed to the idea of teaching the Word of God here at our church. We love displays of spiritual heroism and loyalty. And it's a remarkable and wonderful thing to sing in dramatic emphasis of our loyalty to the Lord. But you can't continue to sing in the upper room of life because loyalty gets worked out on the streets. And we get tested. And we get challenged. And the question is, are we willing to bring our loyalty into the fray of everyday living? I love the story of Neil Davis in the book, One Crowded Hour. Tell us about an incident that happened in Borneo during a confrontation between Malaysia and Indonesia in 1964. There was a group of people known as the Gurkhas from Nepal, and they were asked if they would be willing to jump from transport planes into combat against the Indonesians if the need arose. Now, the Gurkhas had the right to turn down the request because they had never been trained as paratroopers. 
But now Davis tells the story. Now, the Gurkhas usually agreed to do anything, but on this occasion, they provisionally rejected the plan. But the next day, one of their NCOs sought out the British officer who made the request and said they had discussed the matter further and would be prepared to jump under certain conditions. What are the conditions, the British officer asked. The Gurkhas told him they would jump if the land was marshy or reasonably soft with no rocky outcrops because they were inexperienced in falling. British officer listened carefully and then responded that the dropping area would almost certainly be over the jungle. There would be no rocky outcroppings and the like, so that seemed all right. Any other conditions? Yes, said the Gurkhas. They wanted the plane to fly as low as possible, no more than 100 feet high. British officer pointed out the planes always did fly as slowly as possible when dropping troops. But to jump from 100 feet was impossible because the parachutes wouldn't open in time from that height. Oh, said the Gurkhas, that's all right then. We'll jump with parachutes anywhere. You didn't mention parachutes before. Loyalty. Devotion. Challenges. Where are the Gurkhas among the twelve? Remain loyal to Christ as you look across the nation. Even in the midst of shallow devotion. Here's a second distinctive. Remain loyal to Christ, even in the face of personal suffering. Look carefully at what unfolds now. In verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, the same three that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration in verse 37 taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, their nicknames, he began to be sorrowful, troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This is his support group. So his prayer partners. They've gone places no other disciples have gone. They've heard from God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And now Jesus distances himself. And in verse 39, you and I are informed. And going a little farther, he fell on his face. Notice his posture. Prayed. Again, it's a reminder to me that if the sinless one 
saw the desperate need for prayer. How much more so should the sinful ones be fully committed to prayer? It's an opportunity to make sure that wills are aligned. Question. As you look over the course of this week, do you see a realignment necessary in what you're facing? Are you starting to veer off to the side? Look at the alignment here. My Father, Jesus prays. Notice he begins with this intense relationship. It's personal. But then he now adds a condition. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's the if phrase. A conditional statement. But did you notice that word cup? Circle it. And write off to the side in your scriptures that which the disciples have already sung. From the great Hallel, where subsequent now to the Lord's Supper, subsequent to the Passover, That passage had stated, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Now, steeped in the Scriptures as they were meant to be, they would have known, if they had looked back over the Scriptures, that that Isaiah himself would have spoken of the cup of wrath in chapter 51 and verse 17. Now, what Jesus is describing here is not simply uh, mugs and muffins type of thing here. What we're talking about is the cup of wrath being poured out here. That there would be a distancing between the Father and the Son on that cross. Where this cry from the cross will be in the emphatic form, My God, not my God, that's cursing. But my God, that's intimacy. But notice he utilizes the word God, not Father there. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And now the intimacy being described here in the God will be challenged by the pain that's experienced on that cross. But notice what comes next. He balances the petition with a submission, do you? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now contrast the two gardens, the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam would say, not not your will, but my will. But the second Adam, in the second garden, says, not my will, but your will. And what humanity has done is found itself thrust between the two gardens of life and the tension of will in life. And the challenge is, once we offer our petition, 
we still have got to, with our will, be committed to submission. You see, what are you seeking from God? What's your request? And with that request, are you submitting your will? In her best-selling book, The Hiding Place, Corey Tenboom told of that tense time at Holland during the German invasion. She says, particular night, she's restless. She hears the warplanes growling overhead, fiery artillery. Downstairs, her sister Betsy's in the kitchen. Corey can't sleep, so she goes downstairs to spend time with her sister. They talk, they talk, on into the night. All is quiet now. Stumbling through the darkness back into her room, Corey Tenboom reaches out to pat her pillow before lying down, and suddenly she felt something sharp cutting her hand. It's a jagged piece, a jagged piece of metal, ten inches long. She cries out to her sister, races down the stairs with a shrapnel still in her hand. She's bleeding profusely. Corey looks at her sister and says, Betsy, if I hadn't heard you in the kitchen. Her sister interrupts her. Don't say it, Corey, don't say it. There are no ifs in God's world. The center of his will is our safety. There are no ifs in God's world. The center of his will is our safety. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You ever found that after a time of such intense wrestlings spiritually with things that matter the most, that the people that you are so committed to and the people that are so committed to you seem clueless? Check out verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Here's the critical question. And he said to them, no, He said to Peter, who was it in that upper room that was making such an emphatic declaration? Peter. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What's the temptation? Denying Christ. The spirit indeed is willing, the flesh is weak. So 
for the second time, second prayer session, he went away, prayed, my father. Notice again the intimacy. Here's the condition. If this cannot pass unless I drink it. Here's the submission. Your will be done. Came again, found them sleeping. Their eyes are heavy. So now a third time. Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. People, it's okay to pray the same words again. Don't feel like you're boring God. Remember the persistent widow of Luke 18. Persistent prayer has a way of whittling down what's superficial, getting us down to what's real and significant. High priority. He prays the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, okay, guys, in essence, sleep. Take your rest. Take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. We began this series with the whole issue of the hour where Jesus had to challenge his own mother with regard to the fact that she was hoping in that, in that wedding feast in Cain of Galilee that he would display his glory. And he would say, but my hour has not yet come. And now the hour has come. But what does he do? He does not see, and Jesus and I be betrayed. He says that the Son of Man is betrayed, and he takes us right back to that powerful verse in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which tells us that the Son of Man will be given all dominion and glory and authority and power. Now what we see is the tremendous clash of authority unfolding before our very eyes in, of all places, the prayer setting. Don't underestimate the significance of evil creeping into even the prayer settings of this world. Rise. Let's be going. My betrayer is at hand, you see. Are you able to stay focused and remain loyal even in the face of potential and real Pain, struggle, and hurt. Leads us then to this third distinctive that we're called to remain loyal to Christ even in the center, you see, of heightened opposition while he was speaking. Judas came. One of the twelve. It does not say Judas, one of the disciples. It does not say Judas, one of the followers. 
It says Judas, one of the twelve. He fit in. He had all the appearances of loyalty, but lacked the reality of loyalty. And likewise, in modern day Christendom, people can have the appearance of loyalty, but lack the reality of loyalty. Here comes Judas, the one, the one whose feet had been washed just a bit earlier by Jesus. The one in whom the evil one had entered his heart. As we're told in John chapter 13, right before that washing. And with him a great crowd with swords. Don't miss that phrase. Because hadn't Jesus himself said, It is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, you see? And he was quoting from Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. And so now, here we see the great clash between the cup and the sword. They had sung in the great Hallel regarding this being my cup of salvation. Jesus had quoted from Zechariah 13, verse 7, about the sword being arisen, being raised up. And in verse 48, the betrayer had given them a sign, you see. Saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. John fills in an incredible question. Luke poses it this way in Luke 22, verse 48. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus knows. And he can distinguish between real loyalty and simply the appearance of loyalty. In verse 58, Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, Peter, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant. the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Now, as a side road, Peter is not very good with the sword. Great at fishing, not good as a swordsman, because if you've stood by the sea or been in the sea, when it comes to throwing the fishing nets, that is a, that is a vertical movement. But if you've learned fencing, done fencing, that is a horizontal movement. He's using a vertical movement. He is, he is wielding the sword like a fisherman. Just throw, thought I'd throw that in there for what it's worth, you see. 
And Jesus heals. Heals this man who'd lost his ear. And what stands out here is that while Jesus is willing to drink the cup, Peter is desirous to wield the sword. And when Peter drew a sword and tried to defend Jesus in the garden, in John 18, 11, the Lord said, Put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And now the contrast between the sword and the cup flows out of these verses where one is, one is fighting the will of God. The sword. The other is accepting the will of God. The cup. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But now notice what He does. He's still schooling His followers in the Scriptures as we try to do day in, day out with our congregation. Great group of people. And so another critical question. How then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Question. Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But again, notice the scriptural teachings here. All this has taken place that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled And then don't miss dramatically how the Scriptures are fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And Jesus had proactively informed them that God the Father said, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And now the sheep of the flock scatter. And we see here, we see here is that the Son remains loyal to the Father even though the disciples are not loyal to the Son. We're looking here at shallow, shallow devotion, personal suffering, and heightened opposition. Yet through it all, we see a Savior who's loyal to you and me, who takes the cup rather than wields the sword and dies in our place. That's why when I look at this, I'm reminded of great statements of loyalty. Jeb Stewart, general during the Civil War, writing his letters to Robert E. Lee, would always sign his correspondence with this statement. Yours to count on. Are you able to say yours to count on, Lord? in the midst of the trials of life. Let's stand together. Father, we're looking at these questions that keep, they're posed and they're challenging and they're thought-provoking, but they are, they're pressed deep into the heart and to the soul. 
forcing us to deal with what matters most in life. My prayer is that as a congregation, we will not simply settle for shallow devotion. That we as a congregation, when we face, when we face personal suffering, we get together. We keep watch for one another. And we lay out the conditions, but we are absolutely desirous of total submission. And as we look at world events and heightened opposition, I pray, Lord, that we will be taken to that cup where one died in our place and be reminded of the fact that there's nothing to be overly surprised by. But we thank you for the one who is loyal to the end. My prayer now as we walk out of this facility will remain loyal to you. And for this, we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name.